This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist, with all the latest news and information relating to mental health. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and how to make sense of news media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, this is where you'll hear about it first without the hype and distortion of other media sources. With the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, and to better educate the general public about mental illness. And welcome again. This is the Wednesday, July the 2nd edition of Psychiatry Today, and we're about to celebrate Independence Day in 2014, so I hope you all have an enjoyable and safe July 4th holiday weekend. On tonight's show, I'm going to spotlight the unique issues regarding depression in women. And uh, there are some very distinct issues where it concerns depression in women as opposed to men. And I found an excellent article that highlights those. And, uh, and actually another article about how depression can increase the risk of heart attack for younger women. Uh, so we're going to start the show uh, talking about that. And we'll also follow up on the uh, potential insanity defense for the Seattle shooter and look at uh, the mental health implications there. And with the sad end to the United States World Cup run that just took place yesterday, uh, we're going to talk about mobs that behave badly and some people who did brain research about that, uh, including the researcher being inspired by some incidents at uh, a sporting event. I'll give you some of my own unique insights on that. So without further ado, let's get tonight's show started. Depression in women. One size does not fit all. The differences that do exist between the sexes can express themselves in surprising ways. This seems to be the case with depression, which affects women at higher rates than men. Most Sources estimate that there is a 2 to 3 to 1 ratio of women to men in terms of those who suffer from depression. All of the precise forces behind this depression gender gap, as it is sometimes called, are not completely understood. What is better understood are the statistical differences in depression rates and certain forms of depression that are unique to women. According to the Mayo Clinic, around one out of every five women develop depression at some point during their life, and it is estimated 
that women are almost twice as likely to develop depression as men. Depression can develop at any point during life, but the Mayo Clinic notes that for women, it's most common during middle age, between ages 40 and 59. And this is reflected in the demographics at uh, a psychiatric office. I would say the uh, average patient in my practice is a woman in that age range. And this is also very much reflected in clinical trials. When you look at the demographics of people who participate in clinical trials for potential new medications to treat depression, the typical patient is a woman of that age. Differences between the sexes in terms of depression seem to develop after puberty, at which point women experience higher rates of depression. This increased rate among women generally lasts until after menopause, which is why some experts believe that hormonal differences may play a role in depression differences between the sexes. It is also possible that hormonal changes play a role in several specific forms of depression that can affect women. However, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI, which is an organization that supports families of mental, mentally ill people and also, in general, promotes information uh, to the general public about mental illness, stresses that depression differences between the sexes likely cannot be pinned down to one specific item. Researchers suspect that rather than a single cause, many factors unique to women's lives play a role in developing depression. These factors include genetic and biological, reproductive, hormonal, abuse and oppression, interpersonal and certain psychological and personality characteristics. One form of depression unique to women is premenstrual dysphoric disorder, or PMDD. This is different from the common and relatively mild premenstrual syndrome. PMDD can involve severe symptoms like depression and anxiety in a way that interrupts normal life and often requires treatment. There are specific antidepressant medications that are FDA approved to treat PMDD, including Prozac. Now, the exact interaction between depression and PMS remains unclear, according to the Mayo Clinic. It's possible that cyclical changes in estrogen, progesterone, and other female reproductive hormones can disrupt the function of brain chemicals, such as serotonin, that control mood. Now, <clears throat> many people wonder why is it that serotonin-acting antidepressants like Prozac and Zoloft and Paxil are effective at treating PMDD symptoms, but in treating those symptoms, they don't take many weeks to work as they do when treating 
depression that is not related to different stages of the menstrual cycle? Well, the explanation is that there are brain cells that regulate the secretion and balance of estrogen in the brain that also use serotonin to communicate with each other and pass signals down the pathways. Uh, so that's why the serotonin acting antidepressants can help with those symptoms that are unique to specific parts of the menstrual cycle and also why, unlike for treatment of just depression, regardless of the cycle, they don't take very long to work. As a matter of fact, it's not uncommon for women with pure PMDD, that is, there's no depression at any other time of the month except when they're premenstrual, it's not uncommon for them to only take their medication the week or so before their period because the rest of the month they feel fine. And there's no other disorder for which antidepressant medications will work so quickly and so efficiently and so briefly. <clears throat> now, hormonal changes may also be behind depression that develops while a woman is pregnant or is trying to become pregnant. Other factors like miscarriage, infertility, uncertainty about becoming a mother, relationship issues, and lifestyle changes associated with pregnancy can also contribute to the risk of developing depression. After the baby is born, postpartum depression can sometimes develop. Like PMDD and PMS, postpartum depression is different and more severe than mild irritability, changes in emotions, or increased sadness after giving birth. That would be more characterized as so-called baby blues. But postpartum depression is thought to develop in somewhere between 10 to 25 percent of all uh, deliveries. Postpartum depression can involve lingering feelings of anxiety, concerns about a woman's ability to care for the baby, and even thoughts of suicide. It's important to make the distinction between postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis, which is usually much, much more severe, where a woman completely loses touch with reality, may have hallucinations, may have delusions, and these hallucinations and delusions may tragically lead a woman to uh, kill her newborn baby and even her other older children. Fortunately, these situations are exceedingly rare, uh, but they tend to be spectacularly reported in the news media and erroneously attributed to postpartum depression. Uh, these cases are not postpartum depression, they are postpartum psychosis, and it may seem like just a semantic distinction, but I promise you they are two extremely different illnesses. The only thing they have in common is that they can happen in the wake of delivering a newborn child. The rates of postpartum psychosis are maybe just 1% to 2%, if that, uh, of all deliveries. And then as hormone levels shift again later in a woman's life, during menopause, 
Some women may also be at an increased risk for developing depression. This may occur during the transition to menopause, early on in menopause, or after menopause, all times at which hormones and estrogen levels in particular change. Most women who experience uncomfortable menopausal symptoms don't develop depression. And that's important to note. It's not an inevitable consequence of that time of life. But for women whose sleep is disrupted for long periods of time, for example, by hot flashes, or those who have a previous history of depression, this is a vulnerable time. All right, we're going to take our first commercial break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion of depression in women, and we'll have more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Certification. Do you know why becoming a certified healthcare consumerism specialist is more important than ever in 2014? Adding this specialized designation to your credentials tells employers or your clients that you understand how much our industry has changed and how to navigate that change successfully. IHC University's certification program offers coursework both online and live at their biannual forum conference series, and testing is completed online. Reaffirm your position as a leader in the health and benefit management industry. Download our certification overview and learn more at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. And once again, your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about depression in women and how there are unique issues that women have related to developing depression. Now, we've been talking about hormonal changes, but again, there are a variety of factors beyond these changes that are likely to contribute to increased depression in females as opposed to males. Some mood changes 
and depressed feelings occur with normal hormone changes, but these alone don't cause depression. There are other biological factors involved, and also inherited traits and life experiences also are involved. These other factors may include such things as cultural issues, unequal power between the genders, an increased likelihood of sexual abuse, and the demands of managing both home life, like motherhood, and work life. Now, according to NAMI, women are more likely to report certain depression symptoms, including anxiety, oversleeping, physical pain, weight changes, anger, and other types of mental illness like eating disorders or anxiety. Men, on the other hand, may seem more irritable or engage in self-destructive behaviors, such as substance abuse, whereas women are more likely to appear sad. For both, however, several lifestyle factors are important in feeling better, in addition to therapy and possible medication. These include getting up early in the morning, being outdoors, getting exercise on a daily basis, staying in contact with friends and loved ones, even when the overwhelming feeling is to isolate. It seems uh, from that statement that it sounds like trying to recover from depression and feeling better takes some degree of effort, and that's very true. Uh, unfortunately, in some cases, the depression is so severe and so profound the person isn't even able to muster the effort to try to do things to help them to feel better. And when depression is suspected in a woman to whom you are close, NAMI suggests trying to show support and encourage her to seek the care of a professional. But always remember, especially you guys out there, remember Dr. Gray's women from Venus, men are from Mars, dichotomy. Don't try to propose solutions. Listen supportively. This is what women need and appreciate the most, much more than uh, prescribing or suggesting solutions. Okay, now, interestingly enough, I found another article about an issue relating to women and depression. And this is somewhat ominous, actually. Depression doubles the odds of heart attack for younger women. Young and middle-aged women with depression are more than twice as likely to suffer a heart attack or die from heart disease as their mentally healthy peers, according to new research. The study also found that women younger than 55 are more likely than men or older women to become depressed. Exactly what accounts for this relationship between mood disorder and heart disease in younger women isn't clear, according to the study lead author, Dr. Amit Shah, an assistant professor of epidemiology with the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University here in Atlanta. 
He said these kinds of relationships are very complicated and we're still investigating to better understand the reason. Still, the results fit into the bigger picture. He goes on to say, we have known for some time that heart disease is actually the number one killer in women. And that heart disease does start at an early age. And it could be that younger women have neurobiological differences or hormonal differences that make them respond to acute mental stress differently than men or older women. This could mean that when they have depression, they also have an elevated risk for heart disease. An association between depression and greater risk of death from heart disease was not seen among women over 55 or among men as a whole. A woman's lifetime risk for developing heart disease is upwards of 50%. The study that we're talking about was published online June the 18th in the Journal of the American Heart Association. To explore the link between depression and heart risk, researchers followed more than 3,200 men and women diagnosed with heart disease or suspected of having it between 2003 and 2010. Patients' average age was nearly 63 and one-third were women. All of the study participants were scheduled for an arterial x-ray, a coronary angiography, to assess the presence of arterial disease. After three years of follow-up, the investigators determined that women aged 55 and younger were the most likely to have struggled with moderate or severe depression. The researchers found that 27% of them were clinically depressed. By contrast, depression was cited among just 9% of men 65 and older. And while depression didn't appear related to heart disease risk among men of any age or elderly women, the team found that among women 55 and younger, every one-point rise in depression symptom ratings translated into a 7% rise in heart disease risk. That meant that depressed young and middle-aged women faced a 2.17 times greater risk for experiencing a heart attack or for needing an invasive procedure to widen their diseased arterial pathways. For example, placing a stent in a coronary artery. The same women also faced similar elevated risk for dying from heart disease and a 2.45 greater risk for dying from any cause during the study follow-up period. According to Dr. Shah, what this means is that young depressed women should view depression as a motivating factor to live a healthier lifestyle and be more aggressive about preventive care. 
Because depression might undermine a woman's ability to obtain medical care, her friends, family, and physicians may need to get involved and provide encouragement. Researchers have long seen an association between heart disease and depression among both males and females. However, that association does not cause, I'm sorry, does not prove a cause and effect relationship. In general, depression increases the morbidity of many medical illnesses, including heart disease. For example, women and men who have depression after a heart attack often have poor recoveries and are more likely to die. Exactly why isn't clear. We know that depression is associated with inflammatory processes and immune function. That is to say, in states of depression, which is usually brought on by a surge in the circulation of stress hormones, chief among them cortisol, which in turn directs the adrenal glands and other parts of the body to increase the blood circulation of inflammatory proteins, which do damage to multiple organs of the body, the heart and the brain included. But So there's been some thought, in fact, that depression compromises the body's ability to recover from any illness, heart disease included. Again, because you have this increase in circulation of inflammatory proteins and the negative impact on immune function. Another example of the impact of depression on immune function was a very, very elegant study done several decades ago that looked at the white blood cells of people who were recently bereaved. And uh, these were people who were undergone a recent very severe bereavement. Uh, they had just lost their spouse. And it turns out that uh, these recently bereaved, very depressed folks showed decreased functioning of uh, their B lymphocytes, which is one of your immune uh, white blood cells. So there you have it again, um, a strong connection between a physical illness and uh, a psychiatric problem such as depression and also unique association between those two uh, in females as opposed to males. Uh, so really this is uh, an interesting issue uh, for both psychiatry and cardiology uh, because it's well known that women have different types of symptoms when they're having compromised cardiac function and even especially when they're having a heart attack they may not have the classic crushing chest pain and left arm pain that uh, you associate with having a heart attack that's most often in men uh, women can have much more different or even subtle symptoms when they're having a heart attack so just like women experience depression in unique ways they experience heart disease in unique ways and uh, unfortunately as this research tells us that depression can increase the risk of having a heart attack for women.
So another risk factor for women to be considering in terms of uh, their cardiac care. Well, it's time to take another commercial break. We'll have more mental health-related news when we come back from that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is Cheryl Linker, host of the Master Gardener Hour on America's Web Radio, Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. Join us as we keep things fun and interesting as we educate you in the world of master gardening. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory. Ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. The next topic on tonight's show, we're going to follow up on the uh, latest mentally ill multi-murder case. This is um, the young man who's charged with murder at a shooting spree at a small Christian college in Seattle. Uh, a new story came out week before last that he intends to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, or so says his lawyer. Uh, this took place at a court appearance on June the 23rd. Aaron Ibarra, 26, originally was charged with one count of first-degree murder, two counts of first-degree attempted murder, and one count of second-degree assault. In the rampage earlier in June at Seattle Pacific University, that left one student dead and several other people injured. Prosecutors filed an additional attempted murder charge, accusing Ibarra of pointing his weapon at yet another victim in a failed attempt to shoot that person. His lawyers have said that Ibarra suffers from, quote, significant and long-standing mental health issues, unquote, that were a factor in the shootings. And uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the story, he walked into an academic building of the campus on June the 5th, armed with a double-barreled shotgun, opening fire on several people. And when he paused to reload, a student security officer doused him with pepper spray and tackled him, 
and then several bystanders jumped in to help, seizing the gun and keeping him subdued until police arrived. Uh, one student was shot in the back of the head at close range, died. A second man suffered pellet wounds. The third was treated for minor injuries, suffered in the scuffle with the suspect. Prosecutors have previously said in court documents that Ibarra confessed to police detectives that he was the gunman and that he had been planning a mass shooting in which he wanted to kill as many people as possible before committing suicide. Now, as far as the insanity defense is concerned, it may be patently obvious to anyone that the man is insane. You don't have to be a psychiatrist to figure that out. But the insanity defense isn't just a matter of proving that the person has a mental illness. Uh, the insanity defense can only be successful if the court is convinced that a person, due to their mental illness, was incapable of knowing that what they were doing was wrong at the time they were doing it. And it's actually rare that the insanity defense is even invoked, and it's even more rare that it is successful. Personally, I don't see how his lawyer can succeed in this, uh, I don't know if this would be admissible in trial, but there were media reports after the shooting that he purposely had stopped his medications in order to quote-unquote feel the hate. And uh, I discussed this on a previous show. And so that clearly implies some premeditation and uh, some intent. Uh, so I really don't think they're going to get very far with the insanity defense, uh, although I don't know whether uh, that statement will be admissible in trial, so it remains to be seen. And there also are different ways in which the insanity defense can affect a criminal verdict depending on the particular laws of a specific state. Now, I have no idea how the laws are structured in <clears throat> Washington state. Um, but uh, there was some, a recent example here in Georgia uh, where the insanity defense was used, but still the verdict was just. Uh, we had uh, a man who had at least an infatuation and perhaps a full-blown affair with uh, a woman who was married and uh, had a couple of children with a man, and um, his name was Rusty Sneerman. And uh, Hemi Newman uh, killed him in cold blood after he dropped off his children at daycare in Dunwoody, Georgia, several years ago. And he was uh, adjudicated to be mentally ill, but still guilty. So the guilty but mentally ill means someone will still uh, get the same sentence, uh, but as part of their incarceration, they will be assured of uh, adequate and appropriate treatment for their mental illness. Uh, unlike the notorious John Hinckley case, 
who attempted to assassinate President Reagan in order to impress actress Jodie Foster. Uh, he was found not guilty by reason of insanity, and uh, instead of serving his sentence in the normal way, he uh, was committed to a psychiatric hospital. Uh, so who knows what will happen in the case of this Seattle shooter, uh, but, um, you know, again, it, it raises the issue that there is not adequate attention uh, to the inadequate mental health care system. It is too difficult for families to get their loved ones that they know have mental health problems into treatment. There are too many barriers due to privacy and confidentiality to prevent the dangerously mentally ill from being forced to accept treatment when uh, people close to them know that they need it. And, you know, incidents like this and the uh, UC Santa Barbara shooting are going to continue to happen uh, until the pendulum swings back in the direction of doing something more to get the mentally ill the treatment they need short of taking away their constitutional rights. Uh, I admit it is a, a tough line to draw, um, but something more needs to be done or we're going to have to get used to incidents like this happening on a regular basis. Next up on Psychiatry Today. Why mobs behave badly? It's the brain's fault. Mina Sikara, a sociologist at Carnegie Mellon University, recently attended a New York Yankees game with her husband. They are Boston Red Sox fans and wore a hat to prove it. And if you don't know anything about baseball, you cannot find more bitter rivals than the fans and the players of the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees. So to go to Yankee Stadium in the Bronx, New York, wearing Red Sox regalia is definitely taking a chance. They were, of course, jeered, and they left the ball field stunned and wondering, why did they torment us? Now, when I just read that introduction to this article, the first time, I said to myself, really? They were stunned? They didn't expect to be jeered? I find that hard to believe. If you're a baseball fan, you have to be incredibly naive to think that you can wear Boston Red Sox gear and go to Yankee Stadium and not to get really heavy grief about it. In fact, you're taking your personal safety uh, somewhat at risk. Um, I should know I am a Yankees fan. Now, I guess I shouldn't say that. I'm, I'm exaggerating. Uh, you, you may be subject to verbal taunts. Uh, you may be subject to harassment, um, very negative derogatory comments about the Boston Red Sox. But I guess I'm just being facetious about your personal safety being at risk. I would also add that Many years ago, when the Yankees came to Atlanta to play the Braves in the World Series, I went to Atlanta Fulton County Stadium to watch one of the games wearing 
Yankees gear. And the Atlanta fans were very polite. Uh, I had one person sort of give me a thumbs down and another person said, no way, just go home. But that was the worst of it. Um, I do think fans are much more rabid uh, in, in Boston and New York. So right off the bat, I'm looking at this article and like, wow, this, this woman, you know, she may be a brilliant sociologist, but she has a lot to learn about baseball fans. So she wrote this research paper with a team of researchers having discovered a new insight into mob mentality. That is the propensity for groups of people to shed the inhibitions of societal and moral standards. Isolated individuals seldom heckle or riot, but throngs of sports fans not only do that, but unfortunately they get very much out of hand, and especially when their teams either win or lose the championship, doesn't seem to matter, they'll do things like overturn and torch cars. Also, protesters who are fervent about certain issues will storm government offices. Gangs go to war over intangible slights. So Sakara and her colleagues may have discovered a culprit we can't control, our brains. <clears throat> a co-author of the article says, although humans exhibit strong preferences for equity and moral prohibitions, against harm in many contexts, people's priorities change when there is an us and a them. That's co-author Rebecca Sachs, an associate professor of cognitive neuroscience at MIT. Now this paper appeared in, recently in the journal NeuroImage. A group of people will often engage in actions that are contrary to the private moral standards of each individual in that group, sweeping otherwise decent individuals into mobs that commit looting, vandalism, even physical brutality. All right, we're going to take a commercial break. We'll come back and uh, take a closer look at this research into mob mentality in the brain. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Equity and moral prohibitions against harm in many contexts. People's priorities change when they... Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. 
So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. This is Cheryl Linker, host of the Master Gardener Hour on America's Web Radio, Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. Join us as we keep things fun and interesting as we educate you in the world of master gardening. Solution providers, are you aware of the Institute for Healthcare Consumerism's multiple marketing platforms? You're invited to get a little closer to IHC with our Solution Provider Membership Marketing Program. Through IHC's exclusive Solution Provider Membership, your business gets an all-access pass to engaging your prospects. This membership embeds your business within the Institute, which immediately aligns your company, its solutions, and your key executives with the nationally credible IHC brand and shows your support of the healthcare consumerism movement as a market-wide solution. And that's just the beginning. Contact IHC's Managing Director, Brent Macy, today at bmacy at theihcc.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health news. And we're talking about mob mentality in the brain. Now, some of the apparent causes of mob mentality are well understood. Anonymity is one. Yankees fans can disappear into a blur of blue pinstripes. Now, Sakara says of her New York visit, I have never been called names like that in my entire life. She completed her postdoctoral research at the MIT in Cambridge. Well, sorry you had such a bad visit to New York, but again, um, you know, if you're that big a baseball fan, sorry, in my opinion, you should have expected that. Uh, but again, her rude treatment in New York is certainly a good example of this. Uh, whereas um, individually, someone might not treat someone so rudely, when you have the backing of a big crowd of like-minded people, it becomes easier to misbehave. When people feel like they will not be recognized or called to answer for their actions, they are more likely to behave wantonly. Another factor is responsibility. Guilt, shared collectively and spread thin, is an easier thing to stomach. Yet there may be something else going on, something less subjective and more quantifiable. Sakara and her colleagues wanted to find out whether an individual's sense of self, and therefore the individual's moral compass, is diminished during times of collective endeavor. But how do you measure sense of self? A functional magnetic resonance imaging brain scan, of course. Functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, is a specific type of MRI. This is uh, much more sophisticated than a normal MRI, 
and it is only done at highly specialized research centers. Uh, this is not available at your neighborhood or hospital imaging center. It doesn't look just at a picture of brain function. Uh, it actually sees the brain working in real time and can measure activities in different parts of the brain while tracking what a person is thinking of. Hooking test subjects up to these machines, the scientists could monitor activity in different parts of the brain. A specific brain section called the medial prefrontal cortex lights up when people think about themselves and is more dormant when people act in groups like playing on a team or rallying for a cause. During the testing, study participants were asked a series of questions about moral judgment as individuals and while competing in groups. For some people in groups, the medial prefrontal cortex was more inactive than others. Those same people were also the least kind. After the series of questions, subjects were asked to choose pictures of teammates and of members of the opposing team to appear with the published study. The people with less self-reflection chose the most flattering pictures of themselves and their teammates and the ugliest pictures of their opponents for shame. Now, when I first read this article, I'm saying to myself, wow, you've designed this really elegant and I might say also very expensive study. And this is supposed to prove exactly what? So let's read on. It's been hard to get a direct handle on the extent to which people within a group are tapping into their own understanding of things versus the group's understanding. This is a way of using neuroimaging to get insight into something that behaviorally has been really hard to explore. Incidentally, the people with low self-reflection had trouble remembering the questions that appeared during the study. Sikar says that's because the questions were about their own morality, something they weren't paying much attention to at the time, which is convenient. You can't feel guilty about something if you can't remember it. So there you have it. The mob mentality, responsible from an underactive medial prefrontal cortex. How about it? Well, it's very interesting, and uh, of course, we're in the midst of the World Cup tournament, and uh, at the time I am recording this, and again, my show is pre-recorded. It was recorded uh, on July 1st, and uh, not long after the U.S. sadly were eliminated by Belgium, uh, it is well known that there are huge, huge mobs that watch soccer games. And it's well known that uh, club games, uh, particularly in the U.K., but elsewhere in Europe and also in South America, 
uh, are marked by, uh, and I should say marred, by hooliganism and um, uh, unruly gang behavior. In fact, there have even been some cases uh, in either Central or South America where uh, players or coaches or referees who fans thought were responsible for their team losing a match were subject to uh, assault, having their home uh, attacked and burned. So fortunately up until now, uh, again, at least when I recorded this show, there has not been any of this type of behavior associated with the current World Cup tournament. And that, that includes not just the crowds at the matches, but many, many areas set up in uh, people's home countries for them to watch the games on a large screen TV with a large crowd of fans. I think there is something unique about sports fandom uh, that engenders this mob mentality. And uh, also, it's very, very likely that the looser inhibitions to engage in unruly mob behavior are fueled by alcohol, which flows freely at sports events. Uh, but again, I'm sure it also plays a role in, in other incidents like uh, the other ones they cited, mass protests and, and things of the like. Uh, so there you go. Uh, perhaps all those people who were so willing to act badly in a mob at a sporting event or otherwise, again, uh, take a look at that underactive prefrontal cortex. All right, now next up on the show, perhaps a counter to the mob mentality. What if guided brain scans could boost the care factor? What if you could zap your partner or friend so they got you and felt more loving toward you? That sci-fi notion may not be ready to serve up just yet, but scientists have found that a new brain training method may help people feel more empathy. Showing people visual cues about their brain state can improve their ability to focus on infection and tenderness, at least in a lab setting. <clears throat> the new technique was detailed in the May 21 issue of the journal PLOS One, could perhaps be used to treat people struggling with a lack of empathic feelings, such as those with antisocial personality disorder, or looking at it another way, those with postpartum depression. One could potentially develop brain neurofeedback protocols in which you could train the brain to ramp up empathic feelings. Empathy deficits play a role in conditions ranging from autism to narcissistic personality disorder to antisocial personality disorder, and even those without a psychiatric condition often underestimate the social pain of others. Compassion meditation, which involves repeating certain phrases or focusing on thoughts to increase feelings of loving kindness, has been shown to boost feelings of empathy. To see if they could train people to control their level of empathy, Researchers asked 25 healthy volunteers who had no training in meditation to sit in a functional magnetic resonance imaging scanner, fMRI, just like the previous study we talked about, while thinking about a time when they felt particularly tender or affectionate toward loved ones. They used that information as a baseline 
to see how participants' brains lit up while experiencing these feelings. The next day, they were asked to go back in the scanners and asked to focus on these feelings of empathy. A computer compared the baseline brain activity when they were thinking about their loved ones with the brain activity the second day when they were just asked to conjure up these feelings. For half the participants, software immediately converted that change into rendering of a ring, which participants viewed in real time. Others didn't receive the feedback. The more closely the feelings matched those from the day before, the more perfectly round the ring appeared, whereas less empathic sentiments shown on the brain scans for the second day were translated into a more distorted ring. Researchers were giving the feedback to enhance these emotions, make them stronger, and this ring was just a signal to tell them they were going in the right direction. And after four 15-minute training sessions, volunteers showed more activity in the brain regions responsible for empathy compared to those who didn't get this neurobiofeedback on their brain state. And this is actually a, a method that's improved on earlier types of neurobiofeedback. Now, they're hoping to use this technique in situations where empathy is lacking. Of course, antisocial personality, but even women with postpartum depression, they're so crippled by depression, it's hard for them to bond with their baby. And then also have couples boost their compassion for each other. But they have to take this outside the lab and make sure it works there as well. And even conjuring up empathic feelings may not be enough because, unfortunately, we know even psychopaths can feel empathy when they want to. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. And uh, that's the mental health-related news for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed bringing it to you. And I hope that until we get together again next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. And again, happy 4th. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.